Thank you, Gord, and uh, thank you once again for having my wife and I here with you. If you'll remember from last time, I was introduced as the pastor from Cornerstone Baptist, uh, the pastor of discipline. Uh, It was supposed to be discipleship and discipling, but it came out as discipline, and uh, I have tried to do a better job at that over the summer, and the good news is, as Baptists, we have a little baptismal tank at the front. So whenever somebody needs the discipline, I baptize them. I just hold them under a little bit longer. (laughs) Well, this morning, Pastor Paul uh, invited me to speak, and uh, he said I could pick uh, whatever text to to preach from as you have finished now your summer series, uh, which demonstrates his absolute trust in me, because there's a lot you can pick from in the scripture that's um, not appropriate for the dinner table, if I can put it that way. Uh, But I'll steer clear of all those texts Uh, And instead, this morning, I want to talk to you about one that is quite familiar, Uh, particularly as you this Sunday are starting off with your fall ministry kickoff. I wanted to give you a charge, give you a a guide for you as you engage in this ministry. So in the Gospel of Matthew, from chapters 5 through 7, we have recorded what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is uh, Jesus' highest mark of teaching that we have recorded in the New Testament. In it, we get the Beatitudes, we get Jesus' position on moral and uh, ethical dilemmas, and we even get his call to his disciples to live as a saved people. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount uh, is not about how to get saved, but how a saved people should live. In this sermon, we find the answer to one of the hardest questions a Christian can ask. How do I live as a stranger in this world? As a saved people, our citizenship is in heaven, so this world is not our home. And yet, we are in it for a reason and for a purpose until the Lord returns. Because we can, as one option, we can retreat into our our bunkers and into isolation. If COVID's taught us one thing, it, it is how to live in isolation. Or we can go and reach the world with the gospel. The choice is ours. It's, it's yours to make this morning. And I don't know about you, but I want to I choose the Jesus way. I want to choose to follow the way he has laid out and look at how he taught us to live in this world. And we don't have time to walk through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, perhaps Pastor Paul can turn that into a sermon series down the road. So for right now, I just want to zoom in on the the pinnacle or the the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. You could summarize the whole of the sermon with this one verse. That's why we call this verse the Golden Rule. I like to think of the Sermon on the Mount as an instruction manual, a sort of how to live in light of your calling, how to live as a Christian in this world. And like any instruction manual, if you miss or you skip a step, the thing that you're trying to build might not end up working. I was going to give a car analogy here, but I don't know anything about cars. Um, I like to read books. It's like building a bookcase and forgetting to put in the shelves. So missing this piece affects the use of this whole project. And this morning we come to that piece in the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you have heard of the Golden Rule before? The Golden Rule is something we are familiar with as a rule about doing to others as we would like done to us. 
But for the Christian, it's, it's more than a motto. It's central to our lifestyle in this world. And it's challenging for us because we, we know it so well, and yet we struggle so hard to live it out. But this rule routinely seeks to, to redirect and refine us. That's why it's good to return to a text like this on a Sunday like this so we can refocus and we can reevaluate how we're doing with living as Christians in this world. William Barclay, he wrote this of the Golden Rule. He said, And with this commandment, the Sermon on the Mount reaches its summit. This saying of Jesus has been called the, the capstone of the whole discourse. It is the topmost peak of social ethics and the Everest of all ethical teaching. Ethics is the, the study of how one's moral principles guides their behavior. And we have these types of ethical statements in every aspect and area of our lives. Uh, did you know that according to the DMV's test questions in the handbook for 2022, one of the test questions was, what is the golden rule of driving? And the answer was, the golden rule of driving is to treat other drivers the way you want to be treated. Seems pretty straightforward. So this concept isn't foreign to any of us in this room, but, but what does it mean? What does it look like to live out as a Christian in this world? Well, here it is. Matthew seven twelve. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or you may be more familiar with the version of the golden rule found in Luke 6. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Regardless, this verse, uh, the golden rule, functions as a summary of Jesus' teaching on Christian living and ethics. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon not for how to get saved, but how saved people should live. And Jesus gave this sermon to his disciples to teach them how to organize their their mission, their lifestyle, their ministry. If we return to the realm of driver's education, by way of analogy, the golden rule doesn't get you your license. It, It helps you become a better driver so that you can get your license. It doesn't save you, it it trains you. Uh, My wife and I recently lived in Ireland for three years, and uh, over there they like to drive on the other side of the road, also known as the wrong side of the road. And over 95% of all vehicles in Ireland are actually manual. This side. Uh, Manual vehicles, there's not a lot of automatic vehicles. So I wasn't able to drive in Ireland right away, because my Canadian license, I don't know if you know this, but it was taken on an automatic vehicle, and so it says on your license you're only qualified to drive automatic cars. So when we got over there, I had to go through driver's ed again in order to get my qualifications to to get uh, a license to drive over in Ireland. I had a bit of miscommunication with my driving instructor at our first lesson, uh, because he thought this was just a refresher. He knew I already had my license, so we thought... He just wants to get a little refresher. No problem. So he he pulls up to the house where we were living. I go and hop in the car. I thought I was hopping in the passenger seat, but it was actually the driver's seat because it's on the other side of the car. Uh, And he says, okay, let's go. So I managed to to get the car started, um, put in the clutch. I'd seen Fast and Furious, so I knew a little bit of how to drive. (laughs) I managed to get us to the end of the road, and then he said, take a left. So I turn left, 
But where we were living in Belfast, if you take a left at the end of our street, it takes you directly onto the A55 motorway, which is a very fast highway which goes around the city of Belfast. In this case, the golden rule actually didn't apply because as much as I wanted to treat other drivers the way I wanted to be treated, I was just trying to keep myself and this poor, terrified little Irishman next to me alive. But the routine, the, the training in which I received was helpful and beneficial because driver's ed, like the golden rule, seeks to train us in the way we should go. Christians are to do to others as we would like done to us. And that leaves no room for error in interpretation. It requires the indwelling of the Holy Spirit living in a community of believers. So, as we discuss this verse, we're going to ask the following questions. Why was the golden rule so revolutionary when Jesus gave it? How does the golden rule relate to the Old Testament? And three, why is the golden rule so hard to live out in practice? The first, as we consider why the golden rule was so revolutionary when Jesus gave it, we have to understand a bit of the context in which he gave it. I love this part of sermon writing. Uh, Any preacher will tell you the majority of sermon writing is uh, exegesis. You're going through the the text in the original language. You're using commentaries. But part of that is understanding the cultural context in which it was written. And I, I very much enjoy that, the history of it. When we were in Ireland, as I was saying, that's what I went over and did my PhD in, the history of it. As I was looking through some of the history books and records as I was preparing for this, I came to discover other writings similar to the Golden Rule. People have argued that the Golden Rule isn't unique to Jesus. And I did find a number of versions of it throughout the millennia. Um, And here are some of the examples of it. The earliest expression of this rule in the Greek comes from Homer's Odyssey, written 700 years before Christ. In Homer's Odyssey, Calypso uh, alleviates Odysseus's distrust by saying to him, I will be as careful for you as I should be for myself in the same need. I know it is fair and right, and my heart is not made of iron, and I am truly sorry for you. In the ancient Greece, it was a virtue to do good to one's friend and to harm one's enemies. Similarly, Confucius, the Chinese philosopher from the 6th century uh, BC, said, Do not do to others what you wish not done to yourself. And in the Old Testament Apocrypha, uh, these are non-canonical uh, works with uh, kind of unknown authorship and dates, so they're not in your Bibles. Uh, But in the Apocrypha, this rule is expressed as, Do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. And then, perhaps most famously, the Jewish rabbi named Hillel in 20 BC said, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. For this is the whole law, and all the rest is only commentary. So these parallels found in uh, Jewish and pagan literature seem to say exactly what Jesus is saying. But notice that there is a clear difference. Their claims are in the negative. Do not do to someone what you do not want done to you. That, that's a statement which means to prohibit or to limit your actions against each other. For example, don't hurt someone because you don't want to be hurt. 
But Jesus' statement in the golden rule is in the positive. Do to others what you want done to you. And that's a massive difference. Because Jesus is giving a rule which guides and directs all of our actions towards others. He doesn't simply limit what we should do or what is permissible. He tells us what we must do. Love yourself as your neighbor. That's not a negative limitation or a principle. It's a positive rule. It is a higher form to which we are called a higher standard indeed. It's one thing to refrain from hurting your neighbor. It's entirely another to respect and to love them. And I would argue that it's possible for anyone, saved or unsaved, to live out this rule in its negative form. But Christians are called to a higher standard. They're called to Christ's standards here. In essence, the world may say, don't do to others what you do not want done to you. But Jesus has flipped that on its head and said, no, you do to others what you want done to you. And like I said, I think everybody can kind of understand this rule and get a sense of it. Uh, Even Alexander Severus, who was a third century uh, Roman emperor, he so greatly admired this rule of Jesus that he had it uh, carved in gold into his closet. But there's a difference between understanding the rule and living the rule out. Though it may be universal in our awareness of it, it is singularly the practice, the, the call of the Christian. Did you know that, that non-believers, they have reinvented this golden rule? It's informally known as the platinum rule. And uh, this rule has been reinvented by taking the golden rule and adding a, a postmodernistic flair And in it, we see that it's not about how you treat others, it's how they want to be treated. So George Bernard Shaw, he advocated for this rule, this platinum rule, when he said that one should uh, should not do to others what they would not want done to them because their tastes may not be the same. Or Karl Popper, one of the 20th century's most influential philosophers of science, he said the golden rule is a good standard which is further improved by doing unto others whatever reasonable as they want to be done by. And and then Immanuel Kant, he critiqued the golden rule by arguing that it inadequately provided the space for the receiving party to dictate the means by which they wish to be treated. That's why the platinum rule is no golden rule. It, It misses the mark because it inevitably ends up approving of one's own desires or opinions or even one's sin at the cost of Christian morals and ethics. And in our day and age, you could critique the golden rule and say that because everyone's idea of love is different, that to love someone the way you want is actually a bigoted idea. But brothers and sisters, this new high bar that Christ is giving in the golden rule, it's getting harder and harder to live by, because the world is moving farther and farther away from it. This morning, I don't want us to get caught up in the semantics of it all. I want us to focus at the heart of Jesus' revolutionary teaching here. And Matthew Henry, uh, he's always helpful when it comes to getting to the heart of the matter. 
And here he says this of the golden rule. He said, Christ came to teach us not only what we are to know and to believe, but we are what we are to do. Not only toward God, but toward men. Not only toward those of our party or persuasion, but toward men in general, all with whom we have to do. We must do that to our neighbor, which we ourselves acknowledge to be fit and reasonable. We must, in our dealings with men, suppose ourselves in the same case and circumstances with those we have to do with, and act accordingly. There are but two ways, right and wrong. Good and evil, the way to heaven and the way to hell. In one or the other, all these are all these all are walking, and there is no middle place hereafter, no middle way now. So despite all the, the challenges and the obstacles that we may face, let's commit today, commit today as a church to this Jesus-given standard by what is meant for you and me to live as Christians in this world. The second question we want to ask of this verse, as it can be challenging, and it does require some digging, is uh, how did Jesus mean for this rule to be a summary of the Old Testament teaching? We asked how it was revolutionary, and now how does it relate to the Old Testament? As we first zoom out from this verse into its wider context, it's clear that Jesus is referring to some other teaching, and we can actually see that at two levels. The start of verse 12, it actually begins the epilogue or the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And so verse 12 begins with the word, so. And just like when you encounter the word therefore in your Bible reading, you want to determine what the word is therefore. With so, we want to ask the question, so what? How is this statement connected to the following statement? The word so implies that if X is true, so choose Y. It's connecting these two statements together. I'll give you an example. It's like if you're in the grocery store and your wife asks you uh, which line you should go through at the checkout. And you, you look at all the different lines and see that one's moving just a little bit slower. So you say, that one seems to be moving slower, so let's try that one. Now, I hope I didn't have a bit of a tone there. Uh, but guys, you know what I mean? Like when your wife asks you what you should have for dinner, and you list like 40 wrong options. Um, I didn't realize it was a tr- trick question. So, uh, here so is hinting back, not just to the previous thought, or to the previous verse, but to the sermon as a whole. It's making a summary of the preceding two chapters. The golden rule ties back into what Jesus was saying at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17, when he said, And do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's that's the overarching tone of the Sermon on the Mount. You can summarize it as follows. You have heard it said, that's referring to the law and prophets, but I tell you, And that's Jesus raising the bar, the standard for Christian living, as he fulfills the Old Testament teaching. So that's what's happening here in verse 12, when he says, for this is the law and prophets. So now we need to zoom out even further, all the way back to the Old Testament itself. If Jesus is saying that this is a summary of the law and prophets, what what is it summarizing? What is the law? What do the prophets say about that law? What is he getting at? 
When he says this is the law and the prophets, this is actually a saying that Jesus has implemented a number of times throughout the Sermon on the Mount as a way of summarizing the whole of the Old Testament teaching. You can divide the Old Testament into the law, prophets, and the writings. The law would be the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets would refer to the prophetical writings, Daniel, um, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so on. And the writings, which are poetic in nature, give instruction uh, for worship, for wisdom, the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. So Jesus is referring here to two-thirds are these two categories in which you could summarize the whole of the Old Testament. But what is the law that he's referring to? Well, to do that, we have to see it in Leviticus 19. This is Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says this, And you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Jesus actually calls this principle the second greatest commandment. He says that no commandment is greater than the command to love God, that was Deuteronomy 6, and the command here to love one's neighbor. Now where did he say that? He said that in Mark chapter 12. If you'll remember with me in Mark 12, the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus. They want him to say something that they can use against him to condemn him. So they ask him a bunch of uh, trick questions about paying taxes, about the resurrection. And here they're asking him, what is the most important commandment? And he says this in Mark 12. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. So according to Jesus, the greatest commandment, which is articulated in the golden rule, reveals the greatest purpose for the Christian life, to love God and to love one another. Jesus fulfills the law and prophets by using the golden rule as a revolutionary statement to both pagan and Jewish audiences. He's taking what the culture has said and flipped it on its head in the positive form. And here he's critiquing the Jewish leaders who have misunderstood God's law by seeking to limit this second greatest commandment. In essence, Jesus is he's putting the shelves in the bookcase of the Old Testament. In the Golden Rule, Jesus is distilling the essence of biblical ethics, Old Testament and New, and that's how he's relating it back to the Old Testament. Now, the Golden Rule was revolutionary, as we've seen, and yet I would argue that it is still revolutionary and challenging for us today. And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning by asking that very practical question of why is the golden rule so hard to live out? This is the difference between exposition and application. I didn't do a whole lot by way of exposition. It's a short verse. Everyone is aware of it. Nothing really new to to teach you about it except to address the application for how we're to live it out in practice. Even for Christians... How do we maintain living at such a high bar in such a fallen world? Loving your neighbor as yourself seems so easy 
and yet it is not. There's a great uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones quote about the golden rule, uh, which speaks to this issue, and he writes this. He says, People hear this golden rule, and they praise it as marvelous and wonderful, and as a perfect summary of a great and involved subject, but... The tragedy is that having praised it, they do not implement it. And after all, the law was not meant to be praised, it was meant to be practiced. Our Lord did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order that you and I might comment upon it, but in order that we might carry it out. So yes, it's hard to make that next step from knowing the golden rule, as I've said, I think we all do, to living it out in practice. So why is it hard? Why is it so hard to live it out in practice? I have a couple of suggestions that I want to give as to the why. The first is that we are inherently selfish. As a people, we are inherently selfish in our desires. And I think we can all agree on that. Um, I think those closest to us actually know that to be true of us. I'd say the golden rule gets harder to live the closer you are to the people that you're living it with. Um, my sister and I, I, I just had one sibling growing up. It was my sister. She was a couple years older than me. And my parents, being raised in a Christian home, my parents used the golden rule often to remind us to be nice to each other. Uh, but we've quickly learned how to misuse the golden rule so that if we were going somewhere and my sister got to the front seat first, I could use the golden rule to say, well, if I'd gotten there first, I would surely give you the front seat. <laughs> And so we use the golden rule to to guilt trip each other or to shame each other so we could get what we wanted. But that's not what the golden rule is there for. Basing our actions off of sin, off of guilt and shame, that was something that our old self did. But we died to that self through the waters of baptism when we declared that Jesus, the golden rule giver, is now our Lord and Savior. And so we need the Holy Spirit to direct our desires and ambitions. Christians aren't called to these limitations or to minimums, but we're called to principles to strive towards and to abide by. But our selfish nature fights us every step of the way. When Jesus called the disciples to a righteousness greater than the Pharisees' adherence to the law, he provided them the intent rather than the letter of the law. The golden rule is the goal. It's not the rule book. In Matthew seven twelve, again, the golden rule says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do to them. That's the present active imperative verb in the Greek. Present active imperative. I know that's a mouthful. But it means that verb, doing to them, it means that it isn't contingent on the first part. You doing to them isn't contingent on them first doing good to you. Because the golden rule isn't a utilitarian maxim. A utilitarian maxim is something like honesty pays. It's true, it's good, we should be honest. But we shouldn't expect the payout to be that which we put in. In our selfish desires, we would rather return the favor than first do the good. But the golden rule isn't about reacting to how we've been treated by others, but according to how we've been treated by God. I'll say that again. The golden rule isn't about reacting to others, 
but about reacting to God. If you're a Christian, that, that is true of you. Our reaction to others, it certainly does matter. But, but at its heart, it's about God's actions to us. It's as if Jesus is saying, do to others as I have done to you. And so we fight our selfish desires by loving our neighbor. And that requires, that, that demands sacrifice. John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Loving your neighbor, it demands sacrifice. True love is sacrificial. And it requires all of who we are. If you're married here, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but you'll know that to be true. You know what it means to love someone sacrificially. And the Apostle Paul explained that Christian marriage is designed to communicate a message to the world. Wives are are called to honor and to submit to their husbands, just as the church honors and submits to Christ. And husbands are to love and to serve their wives with a self-sacrificing love. The same love that Christ displayed when he bore our sins on the cross. And when you honor and when you serve each other, God will use your marriage to preach a sermon to the watching world. You get what I'm saying? Love is unconditional and sacrificial. Those two things stand in direct opposition to selfishness. They are the antidote. And so we need to keep our selfish wants in check by being unconditional in our love and sacrificial in how we love. And then secondly, the golden rule is so hard to live out in practice because we have desires that do not align with the Scripture. Now, I know that answer might sound a little like the first one, but it's meant to be more specific. Our first answer was simply that we are selfish by nature, but here we're getting at the heart of the matter because we struggle to know what is good and what aligns with Holy Scripture. And so we need to have our minds retuned, our hearts retuned to that truth of the gospel so that we can want and we can desire the right things for ourselves and our neighbors. The natural inclination of the heart is deceitful and prone to wander. I love that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We have desires that aren't good according to Scripture. Romans 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And I won't get into a theological conversation around total depravity or original sin. Suffice to say, we know that to be true just by looking at children. You don't have to teach a child to be bad. They can get there all on their own. Parents, you know that to be true. Kids come pre-programmed to make your life interesting. (laughs) And in this instance, the golden rule is there to remind you that your kids need Jesus. Because little Timmy, little Susie, they look really sweet. But without a new heart, they'll be drawn into the world and they'll be lost there in it. Over the summer, our church ran VBS as we do uh, most summers because it's just such an amazing way to get kids out, our kids and kids from the community out, to hear Bible stories and to to bring in their unsaved friends. And I'll tell you, I think the the primary way by which we're going to get into the homes 
uh, of people in our city in the next decade is going to be through their kids. And so I'm a big fan of VBS. I love the kids coming. Um, and I don't know if it's just a thing with Aurelia kids, but some of them were monsters. <laughs> there was this one cute little girl that would... I, my job was to stand at the door to talk with the parents. Um, There's this one cute little girl that would come by every morning, give me a high five. She was amazing. But on the fourth day, Thursday, this is where things get tough. On Thursday, all the volunteers are trying to push through, and all the kids get a little bit tired. And she ran into the sanctuary, and at the doors of the sanctuary, she stopped because we had these streamers, these blue streamers that came down from the door. Our theme this year was like an underwater type thing. And so, I think, I don't know, an underwater thing. And so that was supposed to be like a waterfall. You were entering the sanctuary. And for this day in particular, she decided that she wanted to have those streamers for herself. Uh, So she stopped and started pulling them down one at a time. And I saw it right away because I was at the door again. And I quickly ran over to her. And because my wife and I don't have kids yet, I started to reason with her. Uh, (laughs) And and I kept doing that until she had pulled down almost every single one. And then at that point, I I picked her up and, and took her to her seat and set her down there. But she wanted something, and she continued to go for it until she had it. In fact, as I was carrying her down to her seat, she smiled at me the entire way. <laughs> but parents, God, God cares about your children. He cares about your children so much. He wants them saved. And if you're here, then, then you do too. And that is a good desire. That aligns with Scripture. So don't stop pressing on them. Never stop your whole life. If you're a grandparent here... You'll know that to be true, that you continue to pray for your kids and their kids and their kids, and that is a high calling. The world, the world may be trying to, to steal your kids away from you and away from Jesus, but he is stronger. Praise God. Your kids need Jesus, and they need to see him in you. And I think it's so great you're, you're launching your kids' church after service today. It's very timely that you do that, and I'm glad you are committed to that cause. So we aren't inclined to do the good, and the golden rule is intended to keep us on track. We'll return to the verse one last time, and notice that it says in it, whatever you wish that others would do, your translation might say whatever you desire that others would do, or however you want to be treated, but regardless, what we wish for, our desires matter. Because if we aren't wishing for the right or godly things, then this verse will lose all of its power. The Christian desires should be that of the Beatitudes. And if we could throw that up on the screen, please. I won't read through the whole thing. But you get a sense in the Beatitudes of who the Christian is to be, what their desires are to be, poor in spirit, those that mourn, those that are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Christians... Their desires should be all of those things. Not perfectly, but in part. Because when we are, we are blessed. And my point is this, that living out the golden rule requires having Christian desires first and foremost. Only then will you not wish to harm your fellow man. Only then will you fight your selfish and ungodly desires. And only then will you love your neighbor as yourself. And not just your physical neighbor next door, right? It probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Your neighbor in this text 
It isn't just the person next door or the family down the road or the folks across town. Discovering who your neighbor is should never start by putting limitations on the definition. Who do you think Jesus thought his neighbor was? For God so loved the world. And I'm not saying that doesn't start with your neighbor, but it means going for the world, no matter the cost, because your neighbor is the lost. Your neighbor is that kid that comes after school for the program. Your neighbor is in Brazil. We have to understand that in Christ, our neighbor has both a physical and a spiritual reality. Because although your neighbor may physically reside next to you, if they aren't saved, if they aren't a Christian, then they will not be your neighbor in eternity. Their eternal residence matters. So make this world your neighborhood. And the bottom line is this, the golden rule won't save you. And I'm glad it doesn't, because it it certainly is a standard that I fail to achieve each and every day. And neither will the golden rule make you a good person. Matthew 17, there was only one who was good. But what it can do is it can make you look more like Christ. And isn't that what this, this whole thing called life is about? It's the exceeding righteousness of which we are called to. And know this, if the world was full of people who sought to obey this rule, it would feel like a much different and a much better world than the one we have right now. It would be a new world indeed, a holy city whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, so go as a light into the world, doing to others as you would have them do to you. Treat them as Jesus has treated you, with all the love and grace that you can, and win them for the gospel of Christ. Let's do that together as you embark on your ministry this year. Let me pray for you as you do. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for for Christ, for his teachings, for his life, Lord, his words, his words that matter, his example that matters to us. We care about that as Christians. And so in this golden rule, you have left for us a, a roadmap. You've left for us a goal and a task to strive towards that we would do to others as we would have done to us. Lord, that we would do to others as, as you have done to us. Lord, we want to be sacrificial. We want to love as you have loved. And Lord, we want to never grow faint in our desire and in our call to mission. Lord, so I pray that you would empower each sitting here in this room, each watching online, to, to join in the cause and the mission of Christ that we would go into the world to do unto others as we would have them do to us as a way by bringing them Christ, bringing them God's presence and the light and the life of hope that is ours in his name. Amen.